my first experience of being a founder was being a international sports person from the drive and ambition to the hours that you put in to get to that level of sport and to be a founder you have to have a sort of north star entrepreneurship is so overly glamorized and it is hard work it's so hard it is painful but i think that really what all founders should learn to do climate change is on the top of most if not everyone's agenda why is canopy not bigger well you clearly haven't looked at what we do you don't get more mission driven than canopy so i wonder does it hurt more when you face rejection a lot of bad shit happened we got our first commitment and then russia invaded ukraine silicon valley tech bubble burst recession hard just like non-stop so it's like come at me in this episode, I interview Thomas Panton, the founder and CEO of Canopy, an online marketplace for sustainable goods. Thomas shares his background as an athletic swimmer and how that helped him become a better entrepreneur, how he raised funding when the idea was pre-product during an era of polycrisis, and how he handled rejection after rejection, especially with a company that is so mission-driven. Thomas, honestly, to me, represents the quintessential entrepreneur. He's determined, resilient, a visionary, and a great public speaker. So I think you're really going to love this episode. Let's dive in. Thomas, welcome to the Strategy and Tragedy podcast. Hello. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. I am particularly honoured to have you as my guest on this episode because you are an ex-athlete. <laughs> yeah, you, you really want me to talk about that. I really want you to talk about this. So we're going to dive into that. You're now the founder and CEO of Canopy, which is an online marketplace to help consumers shop for, learn about and track the impacts of sustainable products, yeah. which sounds amazing. So congratulations Thank on you. that. Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. I bet, I bet. Well, this is why you're here today, yeah, yeah, to yeah. share more of that. Um, but before we do, let's get into your athletic swimming class. Go, go for it. Yeah. Question me. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think um, it's actually, I always say to people that it's like my first experience of being a founder was being a international sports person, because because there's so many similarities from the drive and ambition to the hours that you put in, you know, to having to manage family relationships around all of that as well. There's so many similarities. And I think that I didn't really notice that until I was a founder later down the line. Um, at the time as a swimmer, I thought like, oh, sports people only experience this, it's the only people, but you realize that it's quite... Um, quite a sort of like cross-sectoral. Um, what makes it so, so what are the main similarities that you've noticed between the athletic stress? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, um, yeah, in all honesty, I think that the, probably the most similar is just like to get to that level of sport and to be a founder of a company like Canopy, you have to have a sort of North Star that is your consistent goal, regardless of what happens, the highs, the lows, the middle bits, which are kind of gray and boring. And um, you, you, you're you always set on reaching that absolute goal that you've set yourself. So for when I was a swimmer, that was the Olympics and being an Olympic champion, eventually, you know, that was always the aim. It never happened, by the way, but, <laughs> but that was the aim. And then... How far did you make it? So I swam in international level. So that was at international meets, open meets, nationals, regionals, the main my main career sort of through that was just in the uk but then towards the end and sort of like in my highest peak that was a sort of international competitions mm. but to be honest i was mainly competing at that level from the age of sort of like 14 to 
uh, 17 and then I got injured, um, tried to, you know, tell myself that I could keep going and push it. Another similarity as a founder, you come up against a challenge, you just like keep pushing through. And, but the thing with an injury is that you can't really push through an injury. Um, and by doing that, it created sort of a toxic culture in the pool and all sorts of other things, which actually led to me quitting. Mm. But I think that, yeah, going back to that initial question, you know, when thinking about where I wanted to be as a swimmer, as a sports person and what my life would be around that and sort of what I'd need to commit to it outside of that. Do I need to go to uni? Do all of these sort of questions. It's the same thing as a founder. I always consider, well, you know, should I keep my eye on like job boards? Like, do I do that something I should do? Or And I actually, you don't do that because you're just fully committed 100% to what you've chosen to do. And it's the most similar thing, I think. To, to your own path. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And it must have taught you just so much in terms of, we were just saying before about structure, yeah. determination, uh, self-discipline as well to keep going because yeah. there must be, especially peak of winter, <laughs> cold and dark. The yeah. last thing you feel like doing is... Yeah, getting up at like 4.30 in the morning on a on the, the shortest day of the year is, is hell. <laughs> um, and then having to sort of like jump into a car wrapped in a blanket and get, you know, your parents drive you to a swimming pool and <laughs> it's just... No one wants to be doing that, but you do do it. And I think... Why did you do it? What got you kind of... What made you get out of bed and make it happen? It's, it's a really good question. I, I I don't think I really have like a straight answer to it. I So when I started swimming, I mean, my parents wanted me to swim from a young age just for... So that if we went on holiday, they could like let me go in the sea and I didn't have to worry because I was a good swimmer and all of this stuff. And I think that through that, I just got more and more into it, started competing, worked out, I was quite good at it. Um, and I think it just sort of happens like everyone always talks about sort of what was the light bulb moment of being a founder what was the light bulb moment where you wanted to be a sports person all of this sort of thing i don't think it really happens like that a lot of the time with swimming it was definitely it just happened mm. my parents never pressured me to do it um they obviously wanted me to be a good swimmer for holiday but they never thought i'd be swimming at the level i did um and i think that the thing that kept me going was that when you're good at something and you get rewarded for your actions you know so with swimming that was winning a competition or improving on your personal best or you know knowing that you are just the best at something is mm. quite validating mm. and it's quite an ego boost but if you can manage that ego it can be just make you quite confident and willing to just keep going so I think that was really it you know you get those highs and don't get me wrong right through that there were an equal if not more amount of lows where didn't win did rubbish you know had a horrible time training didn't go training whatever it was and I think that it's very easy to quit in those moments. And you see it a lot in sport, particularly in teenage. You see a lot of teenagers who become very good athletes and then get to like 16, their friends start partying. They start sort of wanting to go to those parties. And then they sort of like, well, why am I swimming? I'm missing out on all my fr like friend stuff. And it's quite easy to quit. You see so many people drop off um, and uh, you just have to be, you know, quite a headstrong uh, not to not to do that <laughs> yeah and that's so interesting just to hold that thought for a moment mm. around the winning the losing as well I'm glad that you mentioned that because you know the definition of burnout is yeah. when you're continually working away and not getting the reward mm. out of it you're not getting that satisfaction so I guess just like thinking out loud do you think that there were you said that there were kind of just as many losses mm. as there were wins mm. do you think it kind of needs to be like 50 whether it's in athleticism or entrepreneurship in order you like you're not going to win them all but yeah. like to have enough wins to keep you going mm. like 
do you think there needs to be like an equal amount? It's or... interesting. Super just to, just to ponder on, right? Yeah, I think that. So I'm 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 someone who works on sort of positive reinforcement. If mm. I'm not doing well at something, instead of telling me I'm rubbish, or telling me that it's wrong outright, and there's no sort of like follow on to that, I'm I'm much better at sort of like this wasn't working. Here's how you can improve. We'd love to see you get to here, or I'd love to get you to there. And so having coaches around you, you can do that. Turn a loss into a win because you learn from it. So I think that you probably do need those, but it's how you manage those. Like, I think that actually, if you were consistently winning, you wouldn't appreciate the wins like, a lot of the time. And I think we see that quite a lot with um, with successful founders is that they like really successful, you know, multiple exits, they sort of made it and then they sort of forget what it is to not make it. And they sort of tell people like all of this stuff about like your mental well-being and like remembering and it's like yeah, easy for you to say dude like you're not going through it now you've been there though so let's just remember that <laughs> i think that actually for those like in those trenches you you really appreciate the wins and it keeps you going because you know you can get to the next one and, and if you can't and if you have to stop it's not like stop and you've like lost all of that experience it's stop and you learn from it and then you go on to whatever is next whether it's being a founder again or whether it's going and working the best in a different life you know it's it's um it's all about how you learn from that loss and then similarly when i quit swimming it wasn't going although there was a period where it was like well what the fuck do i do now <laughs> but after that it was like okay how do i take everything i've learned from this determination ambition stress pressure from other people and how do i put that into doing something good uh, and, and driving that forward yeah oh my god i love that that is such a great answer for a question that was completely unprepared <laughs> That was a fact. I couldn't Sorry. wish for a better answer on that. <laughs> no, it makes, no, it makes, makes a lot of sense. It's just really interesting just because, again, one of the basis of this podcast is that entrepreneurship is so overly glamorized mm -hmm. and it is hard work. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. And I just see whether it's my own businesses or vicariously through the entrepreneurs that we work with, it's just, you know, getting those wins. You know, I guess, yeah, there's one part of it, which is how you define those wins. Yeah. I'm the same as you in terms of positive reinforcement, but you're just like, you know, rejection after rejection. You just, you know, especially if you haven't got product market fit and you're trying to make it work, it's it's a hard yeah. slog. Right? I also think that like, there seems to have been this huge move of like, everyone should hustle. Everyone should be a founder at some point. You know, you need to experience being a founder, like going and interviewing people in the street who are quite happy with their jobs and being like, I'm going to give you this money to go start your own business. And it's like, well, if they don't, you know, people might turn around and go, I don't want to start my own business. And then we judge them for that. And it's like, well, actually, probably smart to say no. <laughs> you know, starting a business is hard. And if you are comfortable and happy doing what you do, then stick with it. Like, you don't need to be a founder. You don't need to start a business. And I think also what's glamorized is the idea of being a startup founder. Of, and, and we forget that being a founder doesn't necessarily mean being a startup founder. It could be just starting a small business or a side business. And that doesn't have to be aiming to be a unicorn or a decacorn, right? Like you could literally just want to provide for your family, live comfortably, even just have a side income alongside your other job. And that's all perfectly reasonable. And like, that's okay. And you don't have to like aim to be this like Steve Jobs guy. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> I think that we, we really glamorize that part. Like it's the end bit. Like you could be like this and, you know, very rarely are you going to end up there and very very rarely is the right is it right for everyone um if if not even for a small percentage of people so yeah i think it, you're absolutely right it's the the glamorization of this thing which is hard but also not right you know for every single person 
I wouldn't go and tell everyone, go and start training and be an Olympic swimmer. Like, it's like <laughs> why? Like, you might not want to do that. It's not, it might not be in their genes, you know, whatever it is. And, that, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah, spot on. Great answer. Total mic drop moment there. But done. That's it. <laughs> done. We're, we're finished now. Thanks, guys. <laughs> no, fantastic. So segueing on from your athletic past yes. into entrepreneurship. Mm. So when did you found Canopy? So Canopy started really started sort of when my first business collapsed. So to give some context to this, I... When I quit swimming, I sort of took a year and went and worked in Levi's and was just like tailoring jeans and was like, what the hell do I want to do with my life? Um, I quite enjoy being around sort of business and my dad has his own business. So it's like, well, maybe I should do that. But it was never really an intention. And all my friends have gone to uni. So I was like, I'll go to uni. And I just sort of like went to a course which sounded interesting. No idea whether I would actually enjoy it. But when I was there, so I went and studied international relations and politics. And when I was there, I was learning about so many global issues and the interconnectedness between business, society, government, all of this stuff. Very interesting. But actually, the most interesting part was the people I met around that degree. And one of those people worked for Greenpeace. So instantly fell in love with the idea of using people power to change sort of status quo. You know, we've seen it through history. Um, I wrote my dissertation in my undergrad about uh, anarcho-communism, uh, anarcho uh, which basically just like the idea that capitalism doesn't have to be the only way of working and there are lots of other societies which would work. Anyway, a bit of a tangent to get to the point that when I was working for Greenpeace, I really found my passion in working in the climate sector and using people power and getting people involved in doing something good and feeling good about doing something good is perfectly okay even if that's your only t intention for doing the good thing. Um, and I, and I, so out of that, just sort of like kept working in the sector, set up my first business out of Greenpeace, um, stupidly or but without knowing in the event sector and um, pandemic killed it. Um, but that, that was when it was like, okay, well, I don't want to stop being a founder now. I've got the taste. This is what I love doing. It reminds me of being a swimmer. I really enjoy the, the stress, but I also really enjoy having like an ambitious goal. Um, and we were sort of stood in a field of sort of plastic waste and we'd spoken to hundreds, if not thousands of businesses trying to build better products. I'd spoke to tens of thousands of people to onboard them into the climate movement. And there's this huge barrier between people trying to do better and the ability to do so and the businesses trying to make it easier to do so. So literally just sat in that field, went to my now co-founder and just, yeah, was like, let's... Uh, take down Amazon and let, let's build a sort of like the place to go and buy for sustainable products. So I was in that field and that was probably in, yeah, 2019 was when that force first started coming out. And then we went and started building from there. We didn't start, you know, incorporating the company until a couple of years later, but it was, that was really the seed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Amazing. And so tell us about Canopy itself then. So it's yeah. an online marketplace, Yeah, but it goes beyond simply shopping for uh, ethical goods. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that we, particularly I, knew about the sort of climate movement or the ability to live more sustainably from a consumer's perspective was that it's really complicated to do so. There are multiple different platforms, multiple different user journeys. You've got to go and learn about what swaps you can make. You've got to verify the claims that those brands are making to make sure that you don't buy something which you think has no plastic in. It has plastic in all of these things. Then you've got to actually find somewhere to buy the products, right? And trust that all that work's done for you. 
And then you've got to sort of, if you can be bothered to track your impact and know how much impact you're having and whether you could do better and all of this thing, it's too hard. And even for someone who has worked in the sector my whole career, I deeply passionately care about how we're impacting the climate. I find that too difficult. And I, as a consumer, wouldn't go down that journey. So Canopy was really set up with the idea that if we could remove those barriers and we could make it as easy to choose that option as to go to just a mainstream platform and buy whatever, then we have a much better chance at getting the majority of the population rather than just the eco-warrior to shop sustainably and live more sustainably. So Canopy does that. Canopy is the only platform which completely streamlines those different journeys into one platform. So yes, it's a marketplace. You could go there and you could buy as you normally would. But also we verified claims for a really strict vetting process. We've added so much educational content and learning. In fact, part of our platform could even be considered ed tech just through the platform thing that we've built. And then on top of that, you're able to see the carbon emissions, the water waste and the plastic waste that you're saving when you make that purchase compared to the mainstream alternative. All in one platform, one user journey. You don't need to go anywhere else. You're rewarded for those actions. It's super easy to use. And that just makes it so much easier for everyone to be able to buy better. Mm. It sounds amazing. And this fantastic, like all in one place, streamlined online destination, yeah. coupled with the fact that climate change is on the top of most, if not everyone's yeah. agenda. We've just come off the back of like the wettest July yeah. I've ever known. We've got wildfires happening left, right and centre. Temperatures are rising. Why is canopy not bigger we've just started <laughs> I, I i i think that we you know we're ambitious we think that there have been a number of shops which have sort of like provided ethical goods um but we've come to a point now in in sort of society where you can't just claim something we need to see the evidence for that we need to know we need to be able to trust we need to give trust back to the consumer the climate movement has done so well at sort of talking about the problems, the issues of the climate crisis. What it hasn't done so well is providing solutions for your everyday person. Yeah. So we've spent, you know, the last five decades really telling everyone how bad the world is going to get and how much of a problem this will be if we don't change something. But we haven't given many solutions. We, we've, we've done well at providing solutions for businesses and governments, but we've really struggled with consumers. So I think that Canopy, if we can do what we say we're going to do, and the fact that we've got the tech to back that up and the platforming to do it, naturally businesses pivot. So I don't, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is it, we've made it. But I, I think that we've got a stronger chance at bringing more people into that uh, than ever before, um, just simply because we've made it easier than ever before. You know, for the entirety of human existence, we have innovated for the convenience that we now have today. And we can continue to innovate to give more convenience to people. If you ask people to go back and give back that convenience for whatever, moral or not, it's very, very hard to convince. It's not going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. I, I would argue that it wouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, much of the climate movement would disagree with me that we need to give up that convenience. Uh, I actually take a controversial opinion that I think that we can have even more convenience, but we can use uh, better business and better tech to to be able to solve the problems that we're faced with today. Mm. So so for Canopy, it's not about going, you bad consumer, give up all of this stuff and be better. It's going, no, no, keep going. We're going to make it even easier for you. But actually, you're going to be able to trust us that this is going to be quantifiably better than anything you've bought before for the planet, for people and for your 
wallet as well ultimately yeah. Tyler, this is so inspiring i feel like i want to join green greenpeace and... <laughs> <laughs> go go for it they this need is, more I people love so. talk about it quick fun fact did you know that the annual spend on outsourcing and hiring agencies is 900 billion dollars this year alone that's why i'm so proud to collaborate with 50pros.com a new and fast-growing platform that connects highly vetted agencies with companies looking for their next marketing partner. If you've ever had to source your own agency before, then you'll know unless you've had a good referral, it can be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. That's why with 50pros.com, they provide you with a curated, vetted, no-noise directory of only the top 50 firms within 50 categories. Head to the link in the show notes, 50pros.com, and I really hope this helps you get it right with your next marketing partner. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah. It's it's just, it's so, you know, it's like that saying, um, the discomfort of change needs to be greater mm. than that of convenience or whichever way around it is. Yeah. Right, where it's like, in order to make a change, you've got to come out of your routine, what you're used yeah. to, the yeah. used places you shop. So I think you've completely got the right idea about it in terms of making it as easy as possible, as yeah. convenient as possible, because you need to... You need to lubricate that adoption yeah. to make it happen because i think these guys that you're talking about they are focused on people like them the eco warriors yeah. the ones who are already bought into it the ones who are but as you say you need that mass adoption yeah. to make a to make a change you know having a very niche part of the consumer market despite that growing you know more and more people are involved with climate action and more and more people are supporting the groups that are pressuring governments and pressuring businesses to change more and more of us are spending our money supporting better businesses but despite that the likelihood is is that those people are doing that because it's become easy for them to do those things they found a way in which that fits in with the other things that they've got going in life family troubles money troubles energy cost you know whatever it is and i think that if we can slot in the ability to use canopy rather than using something like amazon or you know whatever it is then you 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 just you just provide much more of a of a pathway to adoption mm. that than simply going you know radically change your life overnight because this is not going to happen and, and it shouldn't happen in my opinion. Yeah. I, I also think that through the eighties and nineties there was this sort of like huge amount of writing and art about sort of like utopian green society. You know, you'd see these like really futuristic cities and transport that were running off like clean, renewable energy. There were lots of plants. It was very green, like green, like in color. And I think that why did we lose that when we talk about the climate, like when we talk about solutions to the climate crisis? Now, when people talk about solution, solutions to the climate crisis, we think of like, oh, we need to be like cavemen. Oh, we need to like give up all of this stuff. Oh, we can't ever drive. We can't ever fly. Like, why? Like, why can't we move towards that utopian idea, giving the ability for people to live the way they want to, if not even more uh, conveniently, but with the move and, and again, that, that North Star, that drive to get to this sort of society where we live sort of in harmony with the, with the surrounding nature and natural world that we live upon. Um, I think that's a much better way to encourage people to get involved. Also, I'd much rather live in a world like that than be a caveman. So, <laughs> however much, you know, you cut wood and stuff, great fun. But, you know, it's not really what I want to do my whole life. <laughs> What's your stance on either, you know, the bigger countries, mm. China, these huge powers that are polluting the world, the bigger corporates? 
just bearing in mind, obviously, with Canopy, you're focused on the consumer yep. and encouraging some of that behavior change and giving them better options. Yep. Um, but there is this tug of war between who who has the power. Is it the mass market? Is it the consumers? Or is it these big corporations and big countries that are really responsible yep. for this huge... So there's three things that I'm I'm going to say. The first is that doesn't matter. Like, firstly, like if we just didn't change anything and we decided that our two percent of global emissions was completely irrelevant, so therefore we didn't change anything ever, and every other country did, then we would end up being more polluting than everyone else. So there makes no there's no argument there because we should all be moving towards that better world. The second is that you're absolutely right. Big corporations and and big countries obviously have more of an impact than sort of the individual person sat in the UK. Um, well, I'm going to come back onto this, but have more of an impact uh, from a sort of like global emissions perspective. Um, however, like, again, a lot of this is coming down to the impact that we demand. So like what we are asking for from other countries has an impact on those countries' own emissions. The third thing I'd say is that, like, actually data-wise, um, China is pushing further ahead than any other country on the world on transition to renewable energy. Despite their coal stations and coal mining, they're still further ahead on implementing renewables. Um, and, and secondly to that is that um, their historic emissions, if you can count in the historic emissions of countries, the UK, the US and, and Europe are by far the, the biggest culprits um, when it comes to what we've done to the planet. Uh, and thirdly to that is that actually more of China's emissions come from their exporting from the demand of Western countries than China's internal demand from their own population. And if you looked at the emissions per capita, so per person in the country, US, UK, far worse than China. And actually, the worst countries in the world are the oil polluting countries. They're not very populated, and they've got uh, and they've got you know huge oil industry, right? Like Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. Like they've got small populations. Their economy is built on oil. So per capita, each person's own amount of emissions that is accounted to them is ridiculously high, right? It's not a very good representation of like what the world is and what well, who's demanding that oil. The US and the UK and Europe are, of course. So so I think that it's a complicated topic and actually i just go back to that very first point that i made which is that it shouldn't really matter we should all be moving towards that change so that the whole world lives in a better way not just like well let's get china to change first and then we'll change well actually it doesn't really matter we should all we should all be making that transition that is such a fantastic answer thank you for that most startups have a clear mission yeah we talk about having purpose clear mission especially from a marketing perspective yeah. I mean, you don't get more mission-driven than Canopy. So I wonder, does it hurt more when you face rejection? Because it's not, it's bad enough to just feel rejection anyway on a human mm -hmm. level. But as a founder, it's hard to not take it personally when it's your own business, yeah. you're in the early stages. And then when it also goes beyond you, your team, your business, it's that wider mission, that cause that you're fighting for. Yeah. And I know for a fact you still get investors turning you down. Yeah. How? What does that feel like for you? I think, I think there's two two parts which are hardest. Is one yes from the individual perspective. It's of course difficult, and tying into that, the fact that this is a solution to a, a huge problem, which whoever you are, investor, you are going to experience. Right. So it's like 
why wouldn't you support those solutions is, is one question. However, I know it's I'm not so naive to think that that's all that goes into investment. And I appreciate that it's capital return and there's so many other questions around competitors and market size and all the rest of the stuff. So I'm very aware of that. So when that side of rejection happens, it's the initial thought is like, well, you should be backing these things. And But then the second thought is, but okay, but why not us? And what are the reasons around that? And then, so it becomes less of a personal attack and more of just like, okay, how do we move and convince people and and change? So I, I, I'm less concerned about the personal side. The the side which frustrates me most is when, I, when we get rejection is the sort of standardization of climate solutions. It's like, oh, there have been other ethical marketplaces. Well, you clearly haven't looked at what we do because no one does what we do. Like, yes, the model is marketplace, correct. But do any of them verify the claims? No. Do any of them allow you to track your impact, get rewarded for it, share it, come back, sticky platform? No. So it's like, how much have you actually looked at what we do? That's the initial reaction. And then the second reaction is, why didn't they see what we actually do? Did we not relay that properly? How can we change our proposition so people see that instantly and go, I get it. This is different. This is innovative. This is a solution. So it is painful, but I think that really what all founders should learn to do is not take that personally. The first thing is, of course, going to be a hit, but but then you you just have to sort of like work out why that response came. In some cases, it is just going to be shit, and like those people, you're just going to not agree with, and you've just got to accept that. In other cases, that a likelihood that you, you probably haven't relayed what you do properly yeah. uh, and that's been a huge learning curve for us you know raising our pre-seed round uh, sort of into this year but really started last year and doing that pre-product on the market pre-revenue we had traction in other ways but you know there was nothing to see tangible for, for investors like i totally get why we got so many notes if i was just telling someone what we do it sounds great, but like from the model perspective, it's just a marketplace, right? So I get it. Whereas now, like we have a product on the market which people can see, we can relay those properly. We've refined how we talk about what we do. As I said, you know, when you sent me over sort of like what you wanted to talk about, I came back and said, well, actually one of the things which is really important is that we talk about streamlining the user journey because nowhere else does that. And that is what is unique to Canopy. Um, so if we refine these things, I, I'm... I get more confident at being able to raise money again and, and keep that going. I think just to finish that sort of long-winded answer off, um, I think that one of the things that is quite difficult just generally is sort of going back to your point about it being your baby, like you've put so much time and and it's when you get repetitive no's that it, you become less sort of like you, you care less about the reason <laughs> and you just sort of hear the no. So... In the first instance, the first few knows you're sort of like, okay, but why? Like, blah, 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 blah. And then like after like a hundred, it's like, okay, like, I don't know if I want to hear a no again. <laughs> um, but but yeah, again, you, you sort of pick yourself up at that. I know after our pre-seed round, I went through like a month of just feeling like really shit, like really, really crap. And I, even though we'd closed around, I should, it should be the happiest point, right? I felt terrible. Um, I wanted to raise more. I wanted more people backing us. I'd heard no's from people I really respected. Um, and it was just like, quite demoralizing but about you know a month after that we had our next small win and it was like oh fuck yeah like let's go again like i can i can do this i'm gonna raise more money and it's a, so instantly it sort of like cancels it all out and you just get going again amazing and it links back to what we were talking about earlier with the wins and yeah, the losses definitely. and you just you need it because it is yeah. grueling it's yeah. it's horrible it feels horrible you feel it emotionally and you say you know a month later you did get a win but you know 
if you had it, it's like, well, how much longer yeah, keeps going. do those reserves need to keep getting you through? Yeah. But no, honestly, Thomas, big congratulations, not only on Thanks. Canopy, which is obviously amazing, but securing your fundraise, like you just described, you know, during a time where it was pre-product, pre-revenue, and you also did well. a hell <laughs> landscape to raising that. Yeah, yeah, all of like, the above, right? We got our first commitment and then Russia invaded Ukraine, Silicon Valley tech bubble burst, the cost of energy crisis in the UK was sort of announced and then started sort of coming and hitting the real person. Then it was like recession on the cards, so everyone was a bit nervous. And then like all of these other ethical businesses started closing because of challenges in the market. And it was just like every month was like something new. And it was every month like talking to investors who we thought were going to invest, who turned around and go, wow, this has changed in the market. We're going to invest in our own companies, going to play it safe. And it was you couldn't make it up just did you? like non-stop so anyone who raised money regardless of what stage they're at i'm super impressed with that and proud to call them like founders in the market because they've just done amazingly well absolutely absolutely no well done are you able to share how much you managed yeah to we close? so we raised just under 300k wow um which was fine um we could do everything we want to do with that money um we've actually we're, we're sort of preparing for our seed round now, right? So that seed round is planned for sort of opening in December-ish and then, but really through Q1 in, in 2024. And we've started to sort of have those conversations and peak interest. And instantly I can tell you having a product that people can see makes so much difference. Like <laughs> I just get like so much better response instantly. I haven't even opened the round yet. We haven't even really gone to the point where we're talking about the raise. It's just like instantly when I talk to people, oh, we've got a seed round coming. They're like, Let's talk. And I was just like, why didn't I just like get something like and just make it up? Like this is the product. <laughs> Create a video of it. Yeah. Put it on. <laughs> this is the thing. Like we had demos and but I think I think what is what's the difference? And I pe people talk about this, right? Like get a product out on the market, get an MVP out, like, or have a product demo or whatever. And I I get that argument, like totally do, and it does make a difference. But I think the real difference for us, like from now to when we were raising sort of on demo videos is actually the fact that they can just go and use like something which is complete. Like there's always going to be new things that we're adding, right? Like, and as I said, we'll probably pivot at some point, like no doubt. But the point is, is that what we had planned to build is built. So when people go and use it, they get that full user experience now. And that's very different from a demo video or an MVP. So I think that actually, like I'm very, very lucky that we're at the point where the money that we raised will allow us to do what we need to get to the next round but actually we can actually have our product out on the market and people can use it and feel it and give feedback and we can improve it and oh, it's just such a nice feeling <laughs> oh amazing i'm so happy for you actually getting people to use it for themselves yeah. experiencing it for themselves makes all the difference. You difference thomas you've been such a fantastic guest i have a final question for you I believe that the biggest lessons come from the worst things that happen to us since strategy and tragedy yeah can you open up about something pretty horrific that's happened and the lesson that it's taught you and how you've kind of come back stronger than before yeah wow um ending for everyone to have like a raw response um i think that we've spoken a lot about swimming and obviously that was a big part of my life for uh for the my whole teenage years growing up right so the easy answer would be to go to back go back to that and talk about how I always thought I was going to just swim and all of those things. But but actually, I think the, the hardest thing that happened and the biggest lesson I learned was when I 
was going through my swimming career, I was also experiencing quite severe mental health challenges um, as a teenager. And at the time, didn't think that they were mental health challenges, just thought that it was because of you know swimming and being in a high pressure environment and all of these things. Only when I stopped swimming and then went through this gray period of not knowing what to do in my life was when it really, really got bad. And I think that that's when I first got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. It's when I first started having therapy and counseling and a lot of bad shit happened from the age of sort of like 18 to like 24, which isn't that long ago. And it was just like really, really hell uh, for me, my family, for everyone around me. Um, and there were good points within that. I think, you know, everyone talks about mental health as if like when you've got mental health problems, it's shit all the time. Not true. You have pretty normal life, but there are just some really bad points. And um, I think that the the reason I mention that is because where I'm at today is so, so different. Like I still have borderline personality disorder. I'll live with that my whole life. But the lesson of learning to deal with that and going through those challenges and difficulties, having people around you who you can talk to, losing people because, it, you know, you didn't manage it correctly. Uh, all of that stuff, like you, you begin to create a bank of different ways of dealing with challenges not just with mental health but just generally so now when we're you know a, a startup and we're going through challenges in a company going through challenges in personal life whatever it is i feel so just like overwhelmingly prepared for those things because i've already experienced the shittest it could get so it's like come at me you know like <laughs> what are you gonna do like you can't make it worse than it was so everything is going to be a challenge sure but like i can manage I can take it. Like I can take literally anything that's thrown at me. If Canopy fails, it's going to be shit, but there'll be another thing that happens after Canopy because I know how to deal with failure. That's what I learned from having that horrible, horrible time at the beginning of my 20s, but I'm really glad that I experienced it now. Oh my God, amazing. Thomas, you've been such a Thank fantastic you. guest. Thank you so much for coming on. I know that you talk more about this on the Big Risk Energy oh, podcast, yeah. so shout out to Roy Samuel and that. Give that a listen where I know that you talk a bit more about yeah. mental health and other really interesting themes around meditation, spirituality. Mm -hmm. So listen to that episode separately. Thomas, thank you so much again. Thank You've you been wonderful. Me. I really appreciate it. Thank Enjoy. you. If you made it this far into the podcast, then you are my new hero. Thank you so, so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please hit that subscribe button. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Take care.